Uh, but this, this morning, so I just want to acknowledge that today is kind of traditionally Pentecost Sunday. But this morning we're going to kick off our new series of looking at some old Testament and heroes. And they were people who followed God way before Jesus um, walked on earth. Now, if when you hear the word hero, um, automatically what comes to mind is the world of Marvel uh, and people with superpowers, I want you to kind of just park that little bit, put that to one side. And instead, I want you to have the image of ordinary people as heroes. Much like we did right at the start of the pandemic when we talked about NHS workers and people on the front line, they were heroes, ordinary yet extraordinary people. And this is the kind of hero we're talking about as we talk about these heroes who lived way before Jesus walked on earth. They were people who encountered God and they oriented their lives towards him. They were people who found that with God, they began to know who they were, and they found out that they belonged. And as a result, these ordinary people found their place, they found their purpose, and they often ended up doing extraordinary things. So today's hero I want to kick us off with is a woman called Rahab. Now, if you've heard of her before, you might think she's an unlikely choice as a hero. But if I tell you that she was someone who discovered who she was, she discovered who she belonged to, and then her faith saved her and her whole family, and it paved the way for others to encounter the goodness of God. Well, she was a hero. So we're going to read about her. If you've got a Bible, um, open it to Joshua chapter 2. And we're going to read a fair chunk, actually, just to give you the whole story of what goes on with Rahab. So the words will appear on the screen behind as well. Um, but it's Joshua chapter 2. And this is what it says. Then Joshua, who was the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes. The men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. This is someone thinking on her feet. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the ford of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. 
for the, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet, sorry, this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell us what, if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Okay, quite a long passage there, okay, but there's the story of this woman, Rahab. Now, she was a prostitute. I don't know if you caught that right at the beginning of the bit that I've read. Today, that would translate as a modern-day sex worker, someone who finds themselves in the position where the greatest commodity that they have is their body, laid out bare for others to use and abuse. So if you can imagine for a moment the pain and the shame and the violence that this woman would have endured every day, and yet in the middle of this mess, in this godless place, she finds God. She believes. Something in her gets sight of the goodness and greatness of God. And she steps out in faith saying, we have noticed your God. That's basically what she's saying when she talks about all the things that they've seen um, God do and seen happen to the people. She, it's basically, she's saying, we have noticed your God. And she believes that she can be saved. Her faith is such that she risks her own life to help the men, to become part of God's story. Her allegiance, if you like, changes. She chooses God and she steps into the story that God has for her and for her family. And in so doing, her identity is restored. Instead of belonging to other people, she now experiences belonging to God. This is who I am. I'm accepted. I'm restored. I'm loved. So Rahab's is a story of God's grace, of just turning someone's life around. But the thing is, um, you and me, we're much like Rahab. You know, the, the details of our stories might not be the same, but we're broken people. We desperately want there to be something more in life. It can't just be the struggle and the pain and the longing that we so often feel. 
But what we find is that God steps into all our brokenness, all of our mess, all of our pain to be with us. No mess is too messy. No brokenness is too broken. No lack of inheritance is too limiting for the love and grace of God. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your past. No one is excluded. No one is off limits. When you choose to step into God's story for you, your story changes and hope comes. You're given this opportunity to step into God's intended design for you, his intended place for you. I don't know, maybe you're here this morning or listening to this later um, on Spotify. And maybe like Rahab, you've been watching. Maybe you've been taking note. Maybe you're friends with people here or family with people here, friends with people who know God. And over the months and the years, maybe you've been watching. Maybe, just maybe, you're coming to the realization that Rahab had, that God is for you. And for some of you here, that might be the first time that you've heard this. God likes you. like He loves you. Like You bring him utter, utter joy. Um, we were out and about uh, one day this week, and we went to a beach one day, and there was this family there, and there was this young mum and young dad I had this tiny, tiny baby. Like it, it must have just been a few, few weeks old. Um, I reined everything in because they were way over there. Normally, I'd be like, kind of try and find a way to go and say, "Oh, hi!" <laughs> um, but I reined it in. But you know that that sense of when you see a newborn baby, um, uh, you can just sit there for what feels like hours and hours, just looking at the baby. Um, you don't need to say anything, but there's something that happens in your heart that just sings. You're just in awe of what you see, this new little baby. And that is how God feels when he looks at you and me. He, he looks at you and it's just that in awe. I love being with you. I can't spend enough time with you. I just, this, I just love you. That's how he feels about you. It really is. And, you know, you might just want to picture that in your mind's eye for the moment and just sit with that for a bit. He loves us so deeply and he sees our brokenness and he is so moved by it. His heart is so distressed that he steps down into it. And that's what he did by dying for us on the cross. He chose to be broken for us. He offered us himself as this lifeline. Anne Voskamp, um, in her book, The Greatest Gift, says this, God gives God. The God who can reveal himself wherever, whenever, to whomever. The God who is never limited by lack or restricted to the expected. The God who is no respecter of persons, but the relentless rescuer of prodigals. The God who gives the gift of faith in the places you'd most doubt that is always the secret to the abundant life, to believe that God is where you doubt he can be. God is where you doubt he can be. Does that mean that could it be that you are with me, God, right now, right here, in the current state of my life? A few weeks ago, um, a friend was telling me about 
the desperate state um, that someone in her family was in. His life is in such a mess and there seems to be no way out of the trouble that he's in. And she asked some of us to pray, to pray for a miracle. And she said, you know, it's only a miracle that can change these things. You know, this young man is in and out of trouble and his life is constantly in danger. And this friend that um, asked me to pray said, you know, she would call herself religious. She believes in like an otherworldly power. She believes something of the goodness of God, even though she doesn't yet know the reality of Jesus. But she asked us to pray. And when she asked us, my heart was like, God, you are the only person that can change this. I had this real sense of urgency to pray for this young man and for others like him, for situations which seem so unsolvable, so irredeemable, for people who seem so broken. But we believe that when people encounter God's undeniable love for them, that God can intervene in their lives and that things can change. You know, we believe that when the power of heaven is unleashed, that the enemy has to flee. So where do you doubt that God can be? And what if God is there, present in that place, present with that person, present in that situation, just ready to change it, working to reveal himself to the hearts of those that we think might be so far off. And I just want to encourage you to pray and keep on praying for any that you know, that you see around you and people that you know and love that might seem so utterly broken. Pray that they would encounter and experience God's love for them in such a way that it would totally rewrite their stories for generations to come. That's what happened to Rahab. Her whole story was completely changed by that moment of choosing God. You know, we want to be a people here of radical welcome where anyone and everyone can hear the message of good news, that when we come to Jesus, we are forgiven. Our message is to others is that ours and their stories, however messy, can be restored. And ours and their lives can be restoried with Jesus. Just think what this family of ours that we call church could look like people from all kinds of backgrounds with lives so varied but the thing that brings us together is that we know that God loves us and that we're finding that he is for us it might get messy but I am all in for all kinds of people being in this place and being part of our church family Uh, Lee McLeroy says this that's a great name isn't it Lee McLeroy like I mean yeah I could yeah, go off on a complete tangent, but I won't. Yeah, Lee McLeroy in her book, The Beautiful Ache, says this. Each of us has a story. My story is much like yours and yet quite different from yours. It's a tragedy, a comedy, an epic adventure, a fairy tale and a romance. It embraces every place I've ever lived and every person I've ever loved. It's messy and memorable, sweet and sad, mundane and miraculous but more than anything, it's mine. Woven into every word and line, redeeming every hurtful chapter and making the richest parts even richer is the beautiful storyteller who wooed and won my heart so near the beginning and has not, cannot, will not let it go. 
that storyteller is Jesus. It's our God. God cannot and will not let us go. He is the master rewriter of our stories if we choose to let him do that. Now, in the opening chapter of Matthew, which is right at the start of the New Testament, it starts with this genealogy, which is a posh word just for like family tree, if you like. I don't know if you've seen that program, Who Do You Think You Are? It's the program where Danny Dyer found out that actually he's related, like properly related to royalty. Um, yeah, it's, it's a crazy program, people finding out who, who kind of is in their family line. But Matthew Gospel starts with this family tree, if you like, and it says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and it goes like this. Uh, and in those days, it was really important who you were connected to, like your family, who was your clan. And when you reeled it off, you were saying, this is who I am, this is who I belong to. And Rahab, this unlikely hero, is in that family line that leads to Jesus. Rahab, the prostitute, all the way down the line, Jesus. Tim Keller says this, In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. In the old King James Bible, this chapter is filled with the begats. That just means who had who uh, down that family line. So-and-so begat so-and-so. And he says the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. I love that phrase, dripping with God's mercy. There's so much mercy for all of us, for anyone who wants a piece of it. This, like this image of like excess, of this utter generosity of God's grace and love that he pours onto us, that he lavishes onto us. It never runs out, and if we stand in its flow, it pours over us. So we know that Rahab was broken, but we also see that she was brave. All the people around her are afraid. She says, a great fear of you has fallen on all of us. And the king sends this message directly to Rahab, not a general message for people, but an instruction to her directly, like singled out to you, Rahab. Um, you know, here in the UK, if you turn the mighty 100, you get a message from the Queen. Um, it's personal because it comes to you, but also it's not personal because it goes to everyone who turns 100. But the royal message that Rahab receives is not a message like that at all. It's not a well done, congratulatory kind of thing. This is a message that is personally given to her, and it's a message which contains underlying threat. It says, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. So she's ordered by the king to do something, but instead Rahab goes against the king's request because she takes note of the God who is greater than anyone who sits on an earthly throne. This is brave. She risks her life. She stands against the request of the king and she creates a story to send the pursuers off their scent. So she's heard this unfolding story of God's rescuing of his people and she speaks up. She becomes a spokesperson against the ruling authorities. So we see this woman who was a nobody, a person only of use to others, 
now leaning into the hope of this new identity of belonging to God instead and courageously choosing God in the face of opposition. And her story goes down in history. Uh, you can read about it in a couple of places in um, the New Testament. In James chapter two, 2, James says that Rahab was considered righteous because of what she did in protecting the spies and sending the others off on another way. And she's noted again in Hebrews chapter 11 in what's called the Heroes Hall of Faith, where alongside Abraham and Moses and many other people who followed God, you, her name is mentioned. She makes a stand and she chooses her side. And you know, in some places around the world, if you say yes to following Jesus, you put your life in danger. Some people die for their faith. Uh, we're not in that position in this country at this particular point in time, but other people are. A few weeks ago, um, I saw a social media clip of a young woman who had recently become a Christian in a country that is hostile to Christianity. And she was singing a song about how God loved her and how she was now choosing to follow Jesus. She was only uh, an, an older teenager. And within three days of it being posted, she was killed. You know, here in the UK, being brave looks slightly different. What does that look like for you? Maybe if you follow Jesus, then being brave is saying out loud that you follow him when it seems absurd to anyone else or when other people might be mocking you. Maybe it's saying yes to doing something or maybe it's saying no to doing something. Maybe it looks like standing up against injustice or loving other people that others pass by. When we choose to follow Jesus, that decision impacts on our daily lives so that others notice that we belong to God. Rahab noticed what was going on. And in her act of bravery, she was ultimately saying yes to God. She was saying, this is who I am now. This is who I belong to. I belong to you, God, and I believe. So Rahab was broken, she was brave, and she believed. And what ha happens is that Rahab has to tie this scarlet rope from the window of her house as a sign to protect her and her family. And the word cord in Hebrew, which is the original language here, is tikva. And it's the same Hebrew word that means hope. The rope is a sign of hope. The hope that she has declared in the God she hardly knows and yet has risked her life for. The rope speaks of her hanging on a thread. It's her lifeline. It's her declaring her new identity. By hanging that scarlet rope, she's declaring her belief and saying, I belong to God. And the scarlet rope is also an image of grace. It's an image of being rescued. And it's steeped in the image of the Passover. It speaks of a time way back in the Old Testament when God's people painted red crosses above their door frames as a sign to protect them and their families from death. And this red rope image comes before and yet it also points to the image of the red blood of Jesus spilled for us on the cross to save us like the ultimate picture of grace his grace is poured out for us offering us unfathomable goodness when we don't deserve it that's what grace means good things coming to us even though we don't deserve it 
And you know, we have this phrase even today, don't we, of pulling on the red cord. We have red cords to pull on in an emergency, like in an accessible toilet if you need some help, or on a life ring, or the handle for an emergency brake on a train. They're points of rescue. So this image of the scarlet rope, the red cord, points to the lifeline that is offered to us in Jesus. I'm pulling on the red cord to pull me back to you, Lord. It says, come rescue me, God. I'm putting my hope in you. And Rahab believes and she puts her hope in God. And this word for hope or expectation, this word tikva, which also means cord or rope, it comes from this root word that means to bind or to wait for or to wait upon. Who of us likes waiting? We generally don't like waiting for things. We often look for the shortest cue. We get irritated if something doesn't quite fall into place when we want it to. Waiting for something that we don't yet have Waiting when we don't know the outcome. Waiting when we don't know what's to come. But when we wait upon someone, that shifts the dynamic, especially if the someone is God. Because waiting upon God, waiting upon Jesus, is waiting on someone we can trust. It's bound up in deep hope, knowing that God is totally for us, totally faithful and totally trustworthy. God is our hope that we can cling on to in any season of life. He is that red cord. In Jeremiah 29, I think Russ mentioned this verse last week in verse 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope. It's that red cord. And whatever situation we're in today, we can pull on that cord and we can cling to God and we can cry out, for you are my hope. That's what it says in Psalm 71. You, O Lord, are my hope. You are my trust. I love the story of Rahab because it's a story of God restoring broken people. Rahab is broken She is brave and she believes. She chooses to step into God's story for her. And her identity is restored. Her story is restoried. It's rewritten. This broken, brave, believing woman becomes a woman of the court. She becomes a princess. And she becomes wife to a Jewish prince, Salmon. She becomes the mother of Boaz, who is the mother-in-law to Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. She becomes part of the family line that leads to Jesus, our lifeline. He is a person in whom we can all find hope. I'm going to leave it there. I mean, I don't know if you've come here today how you're, where you're at today. I don't know if you'll come um, and you're feeling broken or brave or believing or a mixture of all three. Um, But we're going to pray now. Do you just want to stand up? Let's stand and we'll pray.